0: Hello, I'm Elder Greg Newman, and I want to welcome you to New Hope Fellowship Online. I want to thank you for tuning into this message. I hope and pray that it helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus and challenges you to study God's Word. If you'd like more information on who we are as a church, you are invited to nhfchurch.org. If you're interested in partnering with us financially to help us continue to share the gospel with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, I'm thankful that you're here listening, and I hope you enjoy this message. There, here's what they look like. Nice and easy. There's an invite on the back, and I think my little girl drew something on there, so you can take this one if you'd like. But simple invite for Halloween as it comes to invite them to church and to just be a part with you. They'll be available next week as well, but our kids are drawing and coloring on them to just make it personal, to invite so as we dive into Hebrews, as we get into this series, if you're new with us, you're perfect timing. We're just in the beginning phases of Hebrews. But in chapter 3, we're kind of at a part where it's, the whole theme is greater than. So in Hebrews, the author is trying to say that Jesus is greater than all of these things. And so in chapter 1 was the angels. In chapter 2, he's speaking that Jesus was made just like you and me in human form, And in fact, if you go to Hebrews 2 verse 17 and start there for a minute, it says that therefore, and if you were to circle or highlight the word therefore and point up with an arrow, it's referring to what was said. So therefore, because of what was already said, what was already communicated, this is what happens. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, which is a fancy word, just saying that simply he's going to make atonement, he's going to purchase our freedom, he's going to be the substitute for the sins of the people. For because of he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And he's saying, therefore, because Jesus was made just like you and me, he understands us and he had to be made just like you and me to be the substitute for the penalty For sin, which is death, and so there's a couple of highlights before we jump into chapter three, because we remember that Hebrews is written to a house church in probably Rome time period, and so when we said Hebrews, we don't necessarily know who the author is, but it should then line up with the rest of the New Testament. I mean, it doesn't contradict any other pieces and parts; it should affirm it. And so when we read, if you jump backwards, if you hold your finger here and go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it speaks to this of what he said, he's our faithful high priest at the very end for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So how do we know that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 10:13, it says this, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man, but God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you or your ability But with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So Paul's backing up exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying is that when you're tempted because he himself has gone through it, he can walk with you through it. And he won't tempt you beyond what you can bear. Sometimes we think that in temptation that God won't give you more than you can handle. And the truth is God is going to give you more than you can handle so that you rely on him. But temptation is the other side where he says he won't tempt you beyond what you are able to. You've got each of us as a threshold. He says, how do you then overcome what is common to man? It's already happens to other people is you keep your eyes focused on him. And if you keep your eyes focused on him, then you won't lean into the temptation. You'll be able to see the doorway out. It's little decisions that we make each and every day that tend to lead us in life to where maybe we don't want to be or we find ourselves one day. And so the author is saying, Jesus, therefore, he had to be made just like you and me in every respect so that he might become the merciful and high priest. Now, because he's made like you and me, and he makes atonement for sins, if you hold here, and if you're writing take a note. you can write Galatians chapter 4. And in verses four, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, the author is Paul in Galatians, and he writes this. He goes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so the author of Galatians, Paul, in chapter 4 is saying that the heir of something is just like the slave in the household. Now there was slavery back in the day, there's slavery to this day. Slavery is not eradicated, there's just different types. And so at this point he's saying that the heir, the son or the daughter, whoever's going to inherit the the parent's stuff is just as equal to the slave, even though they are the heir of all things until the time is set. So if you're in the wealthy, if you're more wealthy, sometimes the wealthier will set up trusts or estates, or if you're thinking ahead for your kids, you'll set up like a college savings. And so that when they reach a certain age or they go to college, that is when they can access said savings. Or if you have a trust fund and your parents were to pass away and you go, you get that only at a certain age, there's rules. It's likewise here is what he's saying is that the heir is to inherit all things, but not really until the date is coming that the father sets. And so he's referring to here, I mean, the heir of all things, as long as he is a child until that date is met. In the same way, he says in verse three, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, meaning sin. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So what he's saying is at just the right time, our guardian was the law. And if you were to look at the Old Testament, what's the law? You read the book of Deuteronomy, you'll read all about the law code. And there is over 600 commands in the law code. And so under that, we were under that law. And he's saying at just the right time, God sent his son, Jesus born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law. So we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying Abba father. So you were no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son and heir through God, and what he's saying here in all of this is just as Hebrews speaks, the fact that Jesus was made just like you and me why was he made just like you and me? So that he could relate to you and I and go through the awkward years of puberty and junior high. How many want to repeat those years? None of you. Okay. Because again, they're, they were awkward. But Jesus goes through that, went through that period to relate to you and to I. And he went under the law, but not like you and me. In regards to, I inherited my parents' sin. My father and my mother. That's how I was conceived. Therefore, I inherit their sin. How was Jesus conceived? By the virgin birth, which means he did not inherit his parents' sin. That's how it got passed down from Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were the first two humans. They did not sin. Then they sinned. Then they had kids. And guess what? They inherited the sin, and it traces its way all the way to the present. And yet Jesus was not conceived that way. That's why it's the virgin birth, because he did not inherit the sin. And he was born under the law like you and I are, except he fulfilled the law. He didn't break any of it. And then he willingly went to the cross to die for us so that you and I can be adopted into his household. Keep that in mind as we go through this next part of Hebrews chapter 3. It all builds to what's coming on. Because at the end of chapter 2, he's saying, look, we have a great high priest. We have a great person. Why? Because of what it says there in Galatians. We know this. But because he himself has suffered and tempted, he's able to help those. Therefore, if you circle, highlight that in chapter three, holy brothers, referring to you and to me, even sisters, it's just a, if you were to look at the Greek, the Koine Greek, which is what most of the New Testament is written in, they don't have masculine and feminine as you and I refer to them in the English language. He and she refers to biological he and she. In Greek, that's not the case. But for our understanding and purposes, he is saying, therefore, holy brothers, which is referring to both male and female here. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. And if we keep going in verse 3, it says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. His point is to now focus us back on Jesus again. Chapter 1, he's greater than the angels. Chapter 2, he's describing him, the foundation of salvation, and how he's been made to be just like us. Oh, and he's greater than Moses. And who in the world is Moses? If you're around church, you know who Moses is. If you're new to scripture, like well, Moses who? You see his name in the New Testament, but we don't always go into the Old Testament. And so to kind of give a little understanding, a little background on who is Moses, you kind of have to look at uh, the, of an Old Testament. And he was the greatest prophet that ever existed for Israel. Moses was kind of the creme de la creme. He was the best of the best. In fact, if you hold your hand here and you go to the book of Numbers, Old Testament chapter 12, it speaks to the, who is Moses? How did God view Moses? And Numbers 12, verse 6, and he said, meaning God here, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. So, God's speaking and he's saying, look, when I speak to my prophets, who are going to speak to the people. I do one of two things, either dreams or visions. So I give prophets dreams. I give them visions. They interpret, they speak it to the people in a way they can comprehend and understand. So he says that verse seven of chapter 12, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. And with him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why, were they, why then, were you not afraid to speak, Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And what God is saying is, I don't gibber jab. I don't give visions to Moses. I don't speak to him in dreams. As I am speaking to you, this is how God spoke to Moses. In fact, in Mount Sinai, when you read about him, his, when he met with God, he came down off the mountain, and he shined so bright, they say, "Could you put a veil over his face?" Like, we can't look at you without squinting and, and doing this, because he was so close to God. And the point of that is that God looked at Moses as his basically his first prophet, but all of Israel's history said Moses is like, he's top tier. He is the greatest of all the prophets. There's lots of prophets through the Old Testament, but none compare to the book to Moses. So who was he? Where did he come from? If you go a little further back in history, you read Exodus chapter 1 and 2. And if you were to read Genesis, Genesis is more history. Chapters 1 to 15 gives the big picture of history. And a little bit before that, in chapter 15, you read about Abraham, who is the patriarch of the Jewish nation. And then it kind of zooms in on Abraham's descendants until the end. And at the end of Genesis, you find out about about a guy named Joseph and his brothers. His brothers were really mean to Joseph and they sold him into slavery, but they reconciled. At the end of Genesis, they reconciled, but they stay in Egypt because there's a famine. And what Joseph's brothers intended for evil by selling him into slavery, God used for good. And it was Joseph's attitude through all of his hardships that he could have chosen to give up and be defeated. And yet he chose to honor God and continue to worship. And God uses his turmoil and trials to raise him up to the number two in Egypt. This is, this is, it's getting there in a rabbit trail, but trust me, Joseph's number two. And because he's number two, he has great authority and power. And he allows then Egypt to kind of save up their grain because he has a vision from God, again, visions about the coming disaster that there's going to be famine. And so he saves up. And so all the land goes into famine and people are coming into Egypt and his brothers come in and say, we need to buy food. And Joseph realizes who they are. Egypt flourishes. His brothers again, reconcile. This is a fast, really quick way of saying the story as they reconcile at the end they stay in Egypt. And Joseph says, promise me that our descendants one day will go back to Canaan, back to Israel and take my bones. And Exodus one starts with these are the names. And in verse eight of chapter one, there now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph saves his brothers and their wives and their families. There's maybe under hundred people by the start of Exodus. They have multiplied into the hundreds of 1000s And they become slaves for 400 years. And they multiplied about one and a half million males. So that's double that then, because you're going to have wives, you're going to have children. So there's at least close to one and a half million males at Exodus two. It speaks of Moses born into slavery and the reality was at this point in Egypt, they said the, the Israelis, the Jewish people, are having kids so fast, they're, they're outpopulating the Egyptians, and they're worried if they outpopulate us, they're going to rise up and destroy us. And so they say, well, every male that's born, kill him. And so Moses is born, and his mom won't do that. And so she keeps him for three months, can't hide him any longer, puts him in a pretty much an ark, a little boat, slips him down the Nile, and he just so happens, coincidentally, to be found by Pharaoh's daughter. It's not coincidence. And she names him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And one day in verse 11 of chapter two, there's a fast forward from he's three months old, found, adopted to now he's 40 years old. In chapter two, verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went to his people. He looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And it tells us something about Moses's character. Moses is three months old, doesn't, you don't know, we don't remember at three months. And he's brought into Pharaoh's household, the palace. And he's trained at that point in the palace to pretty much be the next Pharaoh. He is groomed. He is prepared. He has the life of luxury. And at 40 years old, he's trained. So he knows military tactics. He knows how to read, he knows how to write. And he doesn't then associate. It says when he sees his people, it tells you he's never fully adopted in. He looks at his people and he says, I could have had the easy life. The easy way out is to stay in Egypt, to stay with Pharaoh. Instead, I see my people, the Hebrews. And so he tries to bring about God's salvation quicker there. He looked this way and that, meaning he knows what he's about to do is wrong. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, meaning he killed him. He hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. I mean, they were fighting. And Moses said to the man who was wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Did you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And he's like, oh, I'm in trouble. And he runs. And for the next 40 years, Moses is in the desert. So who in here is 80? Show of hands. There we go. All right. So at 80, God calls Moses back. And says, You're gonna be my servant. 40 years old, he goes in the desert, finds a wife, has a couple of kids. At 80 years old is when God calls him and says, You're not done yet. So you can imagine at 80 years old, God's not done with you. The so gladdest God's not done with you. <laughs> when you're 80, God's not done with you. For the next 40 years, Moses goes back to Egypt. Not for 40 years, but he goes back and he leads his people out of Egypt. And he says, This is who God says he is. He is someone I talk to. And he was known as one of the meekest of people, not weak, meek. He had great humility and great care for the people. And he wrestled with them. And as they get into the promised land, and it gets to this point later, they kind of argue. Because the people are coming, and you have to give grace to Israel because for 400 years they are slaves. Which means if you're 400 years you're in slavery, your mindset is a little warped of any self-confidence of who you are. And so as they travel into going towards the promised land, God releases them out of Egypt through the 10 plagues. And we'll go to Exodus one day. We'll look through all of that. As he leads them out, they get a little grumpy. It's the best way to put it. And they rebel a little bit because they're bitter and they don't know. They don't trust fully. Their minds are a little warped. And so they get all the way to the Promised Land, close to it. And they, Moses, instead of going in, sends 12 spies. And some of you are familiar with the story. 10 were bad, two were good. 10 spies went in and said, we can't take the land. It's full of people. We're going to lose. God isn't with us. And what wah, is wah, wah, wah me? And two, Caleb and Joshua said, no, we can take it. God's with us. Let's go. This land is awesome. You can guess who the people sided with the 10 and God got angry and said for the next 40 years, you will wander the desert and everyone over the age of 20 will die and they will not enter into rest. The only two over 20 that survived are Caleb and Joshua in the book of Joshua is Joshua who takes on the mantle after Moses and Moses himself disobeys God. And when God says to touch a rock, he then smacks the rock twice. And God says, because you disobeyed me, you also won't go into the rest. And so when you get to Hebrews three, and he's saying this history, you and I think Moses, we think Moses who, but Moses is the one who was God's ambassador, who defeated Pharaoh through God, who led his people to the promised land who got them close didn't get them all the way in it's also who god literally spoke to and wrote the 10 commandments now moses broke the first one then went back up and got a new set and came back but his face shone with such glory that people said put a veil over it we can't look at you he was revered he is the man he is it And so it says in verse two, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses was also faithful. And he's not doubting Moses. He's saying Moses was also faithful in God's house for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And if you were to say that to the house church or to the synagogue who were Jewish, they would say, excuse me, you're telling me Jesus is greater than our greatest prophet. He is. And he's building the case for that to show how Jesus is greater than and even Moses, who is the best prophet, who God spoke to, who's shown with the glory of just being in God's presence. For Jesus has been counted more worthy, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Verse four, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The ancient custom was that when you lived in a house, the architect, whoever was the mastermind behind him, was actually greater than whoever lived in the house, whoever built the house. The architect was the greatest and who's the greatest God because God orchestrated God is the architect. And though Moses is this great guy, he is just that he's a servant in the house with the son who is the heir, who is no different until the time has come at just the right time when Jesus died and rose again. Therefore he is greater than Moses and verse five. It says, now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast. He says Jesus is greater than this Moses who led the people out of slavery, who led them to the promised land, who had the Ten Commandments, who had the tabernacle, who's seen in all. He is greater. One commentator speaks to Jesus at this point. Christ, says our text, is faithful over God's house as a son. He faithfully fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy. He faithfully, joyfully became incarnate, perfectly becoming in human body, mind, emotions. He faithfully submitted his omnis, his power, his presence, and his knowledge to the will of the Father. He faithfully underwent temptation and suffered terribly, never giving in. He faithfully went to Gethsemane. He faithfully yielded his hands to the nails. He faithfully became sin for us as wave after wave of the world's sin was poured over his sinless soul. Again and again during those three hours on the cross, his soul recoiled and convulsed as all the lies of civilization, the murders of thousands of killing fields, the whoring of the world's armies, the noxious brew of hatreds, jealousies, and pride were poured on his purity. Finally, he became a curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Curses is everyone who is hung on a tree. In the darkness, Jesus bore all in silence. Not a word came from his lips. Can you see him writhing like a serpent in the gloom? And of course, he faithfully died for us. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. But now our resurrected high priest, he faithfully intercedes for us with a faithful apostle and high priest. But Jesus is infinitely supreme. He is great. He is the great apostle and high priest of our confession. And he is eternally faithful over God's house. That's who Christ is. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to remind the church that though you are facing hardship, that though you are facing temptation, let me tell you who you're author and high priest is let me tell you who you're following let me remind you of his greatness that is greater than moses That is greater than the angels that he's made just like you and me he's not someone who's oblivious who can't associate or understand when you fail or when you mess up now he's been there he gets it And he won't tempt you beyond what you can bear. And he says, keep your eyes on me and I'll get you through it. You will see the path to walk, even though you might not see where the end result is. But if you're consistent and faithful, the word is a lamp unto your feet. Meaning it tells you the next right step to take. Not maybe the next mile marker, not maybe next week, but it does tell you what's the next step to take. And he says, but Christ is faithful. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting our hope, you can circle highly under that phrase. If indeed we hold fast upon our confidence, boasting our hope, perseverance. That's what he's imploring the church. Persevere, stay true. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And then he gives us a spiritual warning. Verse seven, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing. If you were to write in the column of your Bible, Psalm 95, it's word for word, what he's taking out of the text. So he's taking old Testament now and showing how both the new and the old combine. but Psalm 95 and verse nine, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart they have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Psalm 95 is referring to the disgruntled Israelis and Jewish people who were coming out of slavery, who wandered the desert for 40 years. So at 80, mind you, Moses goes into Egypt and speaks, brings the people out. And for the next 40 years, till he's 120 years old, he leads that nation of people. You imagine? Imagine. 120 years of age, you're leading these people until that 40 years is up, until that generation is passed. And the warning here is, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, don't wait for next week. Don't wait for the next moment. He's saying, today is when you should persevere. Today is when you repent. Today is when you go after it. In verse 12, it says, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You get trials in the wilderness here in Psalm 95. No one, as I mentioned, over the age of 20, get in except Caleb and Joshua. They're the ones that entered in. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. That's where the 10 went in and said, we don't believe God can handle this. We don't think he can. And two said, yes, we can. We got to go. He's got it set for us. Doubts come from time to time. And this is one of the texts you can say, well, can I lose my salvation? And the truth is, no. If you're in God's hand, who's taking you out of God's hand? Nobody. But there's times in our life when you wrestle with different things that are going to be doubts. And are doubts wrong? No. Doubts are normal. If you're a normal human, a normal Christian, you're going to have doubts which means that as you have your doubts, it's pursuing after God. It's persevering through those doubts. It's too easy then to isolate or to hunker down and get around only yes people. That when we go through a hardship, when we wrestle with different things, it's easy to say, well, I don't like this person's advice. I want to hear this. And you go to the next person. They don't tell me what I want. I go to the next person until I find someone who tells me what I want. That's easy. And he's saying, right here, take care, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. I mean, you just walk away. And it's too easy when you go through hardships to isolate. We have that phrase out in the culture, you deserve to be happy. No, you don't. That's actually nowhere in Scripture. You deserve to be happy. There's a joy. And joy is different than happiness. Happiness is temporary. Joy is constant. And joy says, even in the midst of struggle and hardships, I'm going to sing for joy. I'm going to praise you in this storm. I'm going to walk through this. Read the book of Job, and you read it all through there. Job didn't do anything, and yet he's afflicted. And God works through that. And yet he says, blessed be the name the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be his name. There's joy that we're called to be. How do you then overcome the doubts? How do you then, as you walk through hardship or trials that don't end in a week or a day, you read Job, Job was never ended in a day or two weeks. Job was, when you read it, you got to think months to years that Job walked through his suffering, years. And for some of us, that's us right now. We've walked through something in life or we're walking through something in life, or we have something in our past that we're still a little lingering onto because we're bitter towards it. We're angry with it. How do we overcome? And he gives us that answer. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort, that that word, if you were to circle highlight that, means encourage. You can't go through life alone. And the easiest thing to do is when you get into a rough place or a hard place, you get quiet or you isolate yourself. And you get around maybe just people, that yes, people who disagree with you. You need people who encourage you. Not the ones that suck the life out of you. We all have people in our lives or friends or family members, friends. You can pick family. You can't, but you need encouragement. You need people who are going to walk with you through life. That's why, why are we gathered here on Sunday to know about Christ, to exhort, to encourage one another. It's part of what we need is that encouragement with each other and not just someone who's going to, yeah, you should do that because you deserve to be happy. No, it's called today. Meaning You can't encourage someone today. You think about who God has placed you around. Who has he placed you around? Your kids, your spouse, your coworkers. What are they walking through? How do you encourage them? How do you just smile at them? Take a little longer to linger and ask a follow-up question. Not tell them what to do. I got the privilege last weekend to spend some time with friends that I haven't seen since college. Well, I saw them at my wedding 10 years ago. It's the last time all four of us were together. You don't get a whole lot of good conversation when you're, I was the one getting married. So you, you have conversations, but to really sit down and talk life. So 10 years ago, we got to meet up. So we met up last weekend just to catch up. Where are we at in life? And it's my four, three of my guy friends, one Dan, the man who's in Buffalo, Jared's out in Minnesota and Zeke's in Jersey. We ended up in Jersey, the worst state in the U.S. <laughs> Sorry if you're from Jersey. I don't like Jersey. I like the people, but it was just a way to connect. And we picked up kind of right where we left off and we're all going through different things in life. Three of us are married. One is not one's a bachelor. And one of my friends is going through a divorce. So how do you encourage, how do you walk through it? And my intent the whole time as he's sharing with us and what's going on is to encourage not to tell him, well, oh, go do this, go do this. It's, it was simply asking him questions. How are the kids doing with that? How are you feeling with this? And he would just share and be open. And then it wasn't saying, oh, you want to do this. You want to be in church. You want be in a small group. You want to be praying. Are you gonna... That's not what he needed to hear. He needed to be encouraged of, I tried doing this. I did this. And my, at the end of our conversation, right before I left, as we were in the car together and talking, I said, you know, I just really want to say the way you handled that job well done. It can't be easy what you're walking through and what you're going through, but everything you've told me of what you've tried to do and what you're doing right now, good job biting your tongue and not lashing out against your ex. Good job. Not putting her down in front of your kids. Good job in continuing and faithful to church. I don't know what I would have done. Job well done. And my point in my heart was to encourage, not to tell them, yeah, you failed, man, look at you. No. And not to say, well, what does the Bible say about that? I can't believe you didn't try this, trying to try. We all walk through life, we all go through hardship. And what he's saying is, how do we get over that? Well, we encourage one another. Today, while it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Your heart is more wicked than you can possibly imagine. Read the book of Jeremiah or read that. And so how do we protect that hardness from coming in, that bitterness from coming in? Well, we look to encourage. We look to walk through life with one another. We look to, how do I pour grace upon this? How do I engage and lift them up? In verse 14, for we have come to share Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And He's reminding us, if we will strengthen our faith and avoid the ruin of unbelief, we must be around other Christians who will exhort, that is, seriously encourage us. This shows our responsibility to both give exhortation and receive exhortation. And to exhort one another daily, it is an easy thing to judge and criticize. But that is not exhortation. It is too easy to tear down. In the world we live in, go online. People have opinions about everything. I don't know how many are very positive, though. So if you were to follow me on Facebook, I don't know how Instagram works. I don't know how Twitter works. I do, but I don't do it. You'd follow me, you'd see something. You'd see a scripture, or you'd see funny David Crowder memes that come up. Why? Because everyone wants to laugh and it's much easier or much harder to build up than it is to just tear down and say, well, look at this person. And we have keyboard warriors to the thousands who hide behind a screen. Let me share my opinion versus how do you encourage? How do you build up? And when you look at social media, here's just my soapbox for you. Look to encourage if what you're posting causes others to get all bowed up, is it worth posting? Because that's a 2D conversation. Maybe it's a, you need to be in person to have the conversation. It's why I don't like to do, if I'm going to have a tough conversation, I don't do it over email. I do it in person. Why? Because you read things into emails. It's a 2D. It's a document. And yet people read emotion right into it because we're people. And yet who did Jesus die for? People. And what's a church made up of? people what do people have problems what are we called to do Encourage to not let our hearts get hardened to not just get around yes people but people who will encourage us and build us up we're called to help each other that's really what he's getting at jesus is greater than him and we ought to encourage each other not harden our hearts in verse 15 and 16, as he says, it's today. For, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Meaning that 80 to 120, who was he provoked 40 years? Can you imagine that? That person who just grinds on your every nerve for 40 years, day in, day out. They are right there. And with whom was he provoked? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. If we enter into God's rest, David Guzik writes, then the coming years will only increase our trust and reliance on Jesus. If by unbelief we fail to enter in, then the coming years will only gradually draw us away from a passionate, trusting relationship with Jesus. Our hearts can become very bitter and very hard very quickly. It is why church is so important to gather together. Because it allows us to remind us, why are we gathered here? We're reminded to sing songs of praise to God and about God. It's a getting around a body of believers who doesn't just agree with us, but can encourage us. It's why groups are such an important, integral part of New Hope. Why? Because we can do the one another's to get to know, what are you wrestling with? What are you going through? And how do we encourage and build up the body of Christ to use our gifts. And he's saying, how do you overcome? Well, you keep your eyes focused on Jesus. And those of you doing right now, well, that's awesome. Keep at it. Look to encourage those who aren't. Those of you that aren't, start, continue coming. Continue to put yourself around people who have your best. And you know who those people are who bring life to you, who don't suck the life out of you, but bring life That Weekend Way was great because it was life-giving of being around friends who, they didn't treat me like Pastor Nick. They knew me as Nick from college, and so they're like, oh, great, you're a pastor. That's awesome. Okay, now what? Oh, okay, this is kind of nice. You just treat me as a normal Joe because to them I am. I'm their friend. Well, how's your marriage doing, Nick? How are your kids doing, Nick? What is it like for you, Nick, to just encourage and speak life? And that's what we're called to do as the body of believers is to encourage one another. And when you're in those seasons, God is with you in those seasons. And he usually, if your eyes are open, as first Corinthians ten thirteen says, he provides the people who will come alongside you at just the right time for just the right length of time to encourage and build you up so that you can learn and do likewise to others. There's people you don't know in my life from Israel who have built into me And just going what's on over there, it is hard to see that. And it is hard You don't have friends over there who are walking through hardship. David Guzik continues, he says, we often say our hearts become hard because of what other circumstances do to us. The fact is that we harden our own hearts in response to what happens to us. And we look at the things instead of the people. And we don't let people encourage us. And as we go through life, we're called to help and serve one another. Because that's how you get through those periods. That's how you get through the tough. You have to have people to encourage. And that's his whole point here. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in evil, unbelieving heart. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You will not get through life alone. You have to have people. And we all got problems and we all have issues. But life is better spent together than it is apart. So how can you encourage this week? Who has God put around you that can encourage you? That's your goal. That's what you're called to think about it and then do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all that you do in our lives, Lord, from The good, the bad, and all of the in-between. Lord, you see it and you walk us through things that we wouldn't want to do or want to go through. And yet, Lord, you know that it will benefit us and it will grow us. Lord, for each of us who are walking through some hardships now, who maybe need a little encouragement, Lord, will we find that here today? Or will we find it this week around friends? And for those of us, Lord, who know people in our lives who are going through things... How do we speak life to them? And those Lord that are doing good, how can we also encourage them to keep on doing? To not tell them what to do, but to just lean into them in a way that brings hope, in a way that brings life. And we ask Jesus that new hope people would be known as those who are encouragers, whose focus is on Christ, but who look to encourage and uplift that as we walk through tough times, we can say, Lord, blessed be your name. I got through it because my church Because the people there, would you want to come with me? And may we just be light and salt in this world that you've called us to live in. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.